Blog Talk Radio. Happy Friday, everybody. Welcome to the Michael Cutler Hour. I am your host, Michael Cutler. It is Friday. It is August the 14th, 2020. Boy, the time is flying. The summer almost over. Hard to believe. Uh, And I thank you so much for joining me. I hope that all of you, wherever you are, are doing okay. We're living in challenging times. Um, Almost seems as though Rod Serling is writing the script. Uh, You know, I've often said that if the great uh, author Tom Clancy had written a book that accurately predicted the terror attacks of 9-11 and then accurately predicted what has and has not happened in the wake of the terror attacks, uh, his publishers, his editors, his agents would have told Tom Clancy that it was time, would be time for him to hang it up because it would not make any sense. And Clancy, of course, did a great job in portraying Um, I guess you can call them political thrillers, espionage thrillers, The Hunt for Red October, Patriot Games, and a host of others. By the way, I have nothing to gain by this, but I'm a big Clancy fan. All those films, Red October and Patriot Games and all the others, worth watching. The book's worth reading. But the reality is that America remains at risk, and the risks keep on piling up from around the world. And I have been focusing, as you know, since the terror attacks of 9-11 that hammered my hometown of New York. Those ashes, as I point out, frequently landed on my home and in part contained the remains of my neighbors. Um, The risks are still there. Immigration plays a pivotal role. And my perspective on immigration, based on my 30 years of experience working for the former INS, Immigration and Naturalization service, an agency that under the Bush administration uh, was sliced, diced, and folded into other agencies, creating an unwieldy uh, and ineffective, in my judgment, bureaucratic leviathan, the Department of Homeland Surrender, as I've come to call it. Uh, My mission, uh, mission improbable, if you will, has been to try to alert as many of our fellow Americans and as many of our political leaders, so-called, about the true significance of border security and fair but effective immigration law enforcement. And uh, once again, this issue of immigration has been thrust into the limelight when Joe Biden picked Kamala Harris as his vice presidential running mate for the Democrat ticket. Um, I have to tell you, it leaves me shaking my head. And and creates within my heart lots of consternation. So what I want to do today, number one, I want to discuss an article that I just wrote for Front Page Magazine. I hope after the program you will go and read my article. And I hope if you like my article, if you like my program, please post it on Facebook. Forward the links to everybody you know, particularly the people who disagree with you. We have got to have a dialogue in America. You know, for the longest time, people came to me and they said, Mike, they're, they're going after the Second Amendment firearms and all that. And although I'm a lifelong registered Democrat, <clears throat> I can't tell the last time I voted for a Democrat, just the current crop of Democrats aren't the Democrats that I associate with the Democrat Party. Going back to when I first registered to vote, I hate to admit how many decades ago that was. But I I am a very strong supporter of the Second Amendment. But what was being lost in the discussion, and now perhaps people are waking up, is the attack on the First Amendment, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, the right to express yourself, provided you do so peaceably. Look where we are. Debates on college campuses have all been obliterated. My degree back in college days was in communications, arts, and sciences. I had the opportunity to become a federal agent, uh, not appeared on my personal horizon. My plan was to either become a journalist. And by the way, journalists 
are very similar to federal agents if they do their jobs the way they're supposed to. Because journalists and federal agents and police detectives are investigators. <clears throat> they are supposed to, you know, uncover the facts, to be fact finders, and, and, and be as objective and fair as possible to present the information, and in the case of journalism, nothing less than the democratic process hangs in the balance. You cannot have a democracy. You cannot have elections of consequence when the electorate is being lies and propaganda, what I call the mushroom treatment, keep them in the dark and feed them a lot of uh, fertilizer. That doesn't work. And that's why when there's revolutions, I don't care where, what country, what part of the world, the rebels always, 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 after they seize control of the airports so that forces loyal to the uh, government that they're overthrowing, so they, they protect their flank, as it were, by, by securing the airport. But once they do that, the second order of business is to secure control over the media outlets, the radios and televisions, um, the Internet, <clears throat> newspapers, and so forth. Knowledge is power. You know, people always ask the question, if a tree falls in the forest and there's no one there to hear it, does it make a sound? Interesting question, but I have a more interesting question. If a tree falls in the forest and nobody is willing to report on it, who knows that the tree fell in the forest? We depend on the reporters, on the media, to tell us about what is going on in this far-flung world. It is unusual to be at a location that takes on uh, national prominence or even prominence within your city, let alone prominence in, in terms of events around the world. So if the media does not cover the stories honestly, then the very principles upon which our great nation and other nations that believe in uh, freedom, democracy, a democratic process, democratic republics, call it what you will, that process is not possible. And the lies that have been coming out of the mainstream media within the past couple of decades have gotten more and more pronounced and more and more dangerous. And this is a tragedy, and it's frightening. Understand that there's no such thing as political correctness. That's a term that's made up to conceal the truth. What we're really witnessing and have been witnessing for quite some time is, is something that I call Orwellian Newspeak. I'm going to give all of you a homework assignment. I've given you this assignment before. I hope you took me up on it. <clears throat> if you haven't or if you're new to my program, please get your hands on a copy, either a a real, you know, paper book or, or a virtual book called 1984 by George Orwell. Because if you read it, you will understand exactly what's going on. You know, it's this control of thought through control of language. Human beings think with words. When you can eliminate the words, you eliminate the thoughts. There was an interesting experiment done a while back, and I wrote about this for Front Page Magazine. <clears throat> they took some test subjects. And they split them into groups, and they had them watch a video of a car crash. But in some cases, the questionnaires that they were asked referred to the crash as a collision, as an accident, or as a crash. I believe those were the words they used. Um, and, and what's remarkable, that people that, that read collision or read accident didn't think the accident was as violent as when the word crash was used. The word crash conjured up a stronger issue, a stronger image in their minds. We're not robots. We're not tape recorders. Our memories are anything but perfect. <clears throat> That's why expert witness testimony is problematic. Because if, if 10 people see a car accident, you're going to get 10 different versions of what happened. It's just the way it is. We aren't machines, okay? So you, you color what you see with past experiences, with your perspectives, there's complicated overlays. And they then took these same test subjects, and two weeks later or whatever, there was a period of time, they brought them back, and they asked them questions about the videotape of the accident. Now, this is really remarkable, because the people that were asked about the accident, but they used the word crash, was something like 70% or more uh, likely to say, that they saw glass breaking upon impact. 
over 70% of the people, when they use the word, and this was based on a memory of what they saw on the videotape. What's remarkable was that no windows broke. But when they used the question, was there broken glass as a result of the crash, they were much more likely to say, yes, there was, than those people when they used the word collision or accident. I believe those were the other words. I don't have the, the report in front of me. But the point that I'm making, and this is the takeaway, <clears throat> words have a strong impact, create a strong influence in the way people understand issues. Words are so critical. Uh, back at work, people called me a wordsmith, which I guess makes sense because my degree was in communications, arts, and sciences. So it is the study of language, how to use language effectively uh, as a tool of persuasion. So understand how critical it is. So when you come out and declare anybody who wants, any alien in the United States that becomes an immigrant, as they did under Jimmy Carter, over time, what the media then said was, well, if you want to impose any restrictions on immigrants, you're anti-immigrant. That's not the case at all. And it's really important for everyone to understand the issue. It's not anti-immigrant to want to enforce the immigration laws. Because the immigration laws not only tell us who to kick out and who to keep out. And by the way, it's not based on race, religion, or ethnicity. I'm going to tell you right now, if that was the case, I could not have worked for the INS for 30 seconds, let alone 30 years, um, uh, for many reasons, not the least of which being that my family was decimated in the Holocaust. When you start to single people out because of religion or race or ethnicity, you are inviting the whirlwind. You are inviting catastrophe and tragedy. Our immigration laws have nothing to do with that. It's about aliens who have dangerous communicable diseases. By the way, if you go to my article, and I hope you will, <clears throat> and the title of my article is Sanctuary, in quote, Sanctuary New York City creates its own, quote, border patrol. I include the section of law that lists the categories of aliens who are And so the ground for doing that, aliens with dangerous communicable diseases, aliens who suffer severe mental illness, aliens who are criminals and spies and terrorists and human rights violators, fugitives from justice. In other words, people who pose a threat either to national security or public safety or public health. And then we get to aliens who, if um, they were to work in the United States, would displace American workers cost Americans their jobs, and or drive down the wages of those people who are working in the United States. That's what the laws are about. And people who are admitted legally and then violate the terms of their admission, if they come temporarily and they work without permission, fail to attend the school they were admitted to attend, were admitted to do temporary work in a particular industry and fail to show up, overstay their visas, or commit felonies. These are people who then become subject to removal, deportation. And why wouldn't they? There's an implied contract. If you have a student visa, we expect you're going to go to that school. If you're coming as a tourist, we're expecting that you're not going to work and you will leave within the appointed time. This is no different from the person who rents a hotel room. And if you ever bother to read the small print when you sign for your room, you're agreeing that if you damage it, you buy it. There's a contract between the person who uh, rents that room in the hotel and, 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 and the hotel itself. You can't go in there, throw a wild party, and smash the windows and steal the television and think you're going to get away with it. Well, there's an implied contract between foreign nationals who enter the United States and the authorities who admit them into the United States. And what they're saying is, I'm telling you the truth about my identity. I'm telling you the truth about my reasons for coming here. And I'm not going to do anything outside of the law. Well, we all know that lots of aliens violate our laws. And that's the job of immigration agents to conduct the investigations and if violations are committed to make arrests and gather the evidence. It's reasonable. <clears throat> but remember, sometimes investigations uh, enable aliens to be exonerated, enable them to get citizenship, get green cards, get political asylum. It's about gathering the facts so that a just, decision can be rendered that's not anti-immigrant but yet the way that the media has twisted the discussion about immigration it's pro-immigrant versus anti-immigrant pro-immigrant are really immigration anarchists no borders 
no laws, no nothing. Come to America, do whatever you want, and even if you commit an armed robbery, we're not going to deport you. We're going to let you stay here. That's what sanctuary cities are doing. Understand how dangerous that is. <clears throat> so this is a, a, a big deal. But because of this use of language over years' time, we are in a situation where people are now convinced absolutely positively that anyone who wants to enforce the immigration laws <clears throat> are terrible people. And in fact, and this is the point here, Camilla Harris, I call her Chameleon Harris, she stands for nothing but consolidating political power. Chameleon Harris has referred or, or, or compared immigration agents to the KKK. Cuomo, the governor of the state of New York, calls them thugs. How in the world do you compare agents who protect American Americans, uh, equate them with the KKK, and when the point of fact, the most likely victim of crimes committed by foreign nationals are the folks who live within ethnic immigrant communities? If you are of Chinese nationality, you're probably going to live in, not always, but usually live within a Chinese ethnic community. If you're here from Jamaica, you're going to live in a Caribbean community. The Israelis tend to live within Middle Eastern communities. Uh, the Italians, the Brits, they're going to probably live within European uh, ethnicity communities and, and so forth. <clears throat> so when among them are criminals, well, where are they living within the ethnic immigrant communities? People that fled violence in their home country are waking up to their horror to find that the thugs they were running from are now living next door to them or across the street from them. But this is this fake narrative. And meanwhile, if you look at what the 9-11 Commission had to say, they were crystal clear that, in point of fact, if you um, want to look at the root cause, how the terror attacks of 9-11 came to be carried out, number one on the issue was multiple violations of our nation's immigration laws. Think about that. So the 9-11 Commission, to which I provided testimony, by the way, was convened for a very simple purpose. We were terribly attacked. Lots of people were killed. The devastation was felt around the world. The impact continues to this very day. So the purpose of the 9-11 Commission was to figure out what went wrong, just like when Space Shuttle Challenger blew up or when Space Shuttle Columbia disintegrated as it was entering the atmosphere or an airplane crashes and the FAA and the NTSB go out there and they do an investigation. Why? Well, they want to know how an airliner filled with passengers uh, fell out of the sky and created a smoking hole in the ground that killed hundreds of people. And this isn't just an academic question. It's not just about filing a lawsuit. It's also to fix whatever the problem was so it doesn't happen again. You know, doing the same thing the same way and expecting a different outcome is the way you define insanity. Or as my dad used to say, there's no mistakes in life, only lessons if we learn from what goes wrong. Well, that was the reason for the 9-11 Commission. How did this happen? Well, let's look at the 9-11 Commission staff report on terrorist travel. Uh, again, I provided testimony, and the staff report, by the way, was drawn up by the federal agents and attorneys who were assigned to the 9-11 Commission. It's an official report that was published by the U.S. Government Printing Office. And I want you to know that because this isn't something that was published in some supermarket tabloid. This is considered an official report. It's the companion document that goes with the 9-11 Commission report. So I'm going to read a couple of sections from that. And then we're going to talk about what Kamala Harris has had to say and what other Democrats have had to say, and frankly, some Republicans, because there's no shortage of globalists in the Republican Party, people like Mitt Romney and others, people like Bob Goodlatte, who used to be the chairman of the House uh, Immigration, I'm sorry, the House Judiciary Committee, which oversees immigration. Bob Goodlatte, Republican, was also an immigration lawyer who loved H-1B visas, no shock. Before he went to Congress, he made a ton of money with a very successful H-1B visa practice. And when I had a meeting with him, he told me that his son was a brilliant guy and knew so much about the computer industry and that he would love, his son would love to have thousands and thousands of brilliant Indian programmers come to America. And I said, why in the world would you want to do that? My late wife, my first wife, who passed away many years ago, over 30 years ago, brilliant woman, died of cancer tragically, was a programmer. MBA, computer science, Phi Beta Kappa graduate, member of the National Math Honor Society, and so many of her colleagues, and at the time almost all of them were Americans, had similar credentials. These were brilliant, the best of the best. 
I always felt um, kind of like the idiot in the crowd when I went out to lunch with these brilliant programmers. <clears throat> Today, they're losing their jobs or have lost their jobs replaced by people from India. And here is this Republican chairman of the House Judiciary Committee telling me that it would be a wonderful thing, an incredible thing, if we could only bring thousands and thousands and thousands more programmers to the United States from India. And I looked at him and I said, well, what in the world are Americans, chopped liver? And he just looked at me and said, Mr. Cutler, our conversation is over. Now, Abraham Lincoln envisioned the government of the people, by the people, and for the people. Which people? CEOs? Immigration lawyers? People from other countries? No, the American people. So you would expect that if we are to live up to President Lincoln's lofty vision of America, that Americans should be getting first shot at the best educations, that Americans should be getting first shot at the best jobs. That's not the case. So the Republicans started this idea of destroying wages and jobs for Americans because they wanted to placate the people at the Chamber of Commerce, the Immigration Lawyers Association, these various unions that love to enlist more people, whether they're here legally, illegally, doesn't matter to many of these unions, not all unions, but many. Because all they want is union dues and bigger numbers of members because that gives them political leverage as well as money, which translates into power, and power equals more money. And Americans, meanwhile, are getting shafted every which way. So the 9-11 Commission comes along and says this. <clears throat> this is the very first paragraph of that 9-11 Commission staff report on terrorist travel. It is perhaps obvious to state that terrorists cannot plan and carry out attacks in the United States if they are unable to enter the country. Yet prior to September 11, while there were efforts to enhance border security, no agency of the United States government thought of border security as a tool in the counterterrorism arsenal. Indeed, even after 19 hijackers demonstrated the relative ease of obtaining a U.S. visa and gaining admission into the United States, border security still is not considered a cornerstone of national security policy. We believe, for reasons we discussed in the following pages, that it must be made one. It's pretty clear. There's no ambiguity to that statement. Keep the bad guys out of the country. Lock your door at night so burglars don't come in and rob. Don't steal. Don't rape. Lock your door at night. But common sense. Well, Camilla the Chameleon has said that she wants to decriminalize people who enter the United States illegally. Now, I worked with Al D'Amato back in the early 80s because I was frustrated as an agent, and I convinced Senator D'Amato, and I got others of my colleagues to go with me eventually, that we needed to make the crime of unlawful entry or reentry after people are deported, after aliens are removed because they're criminals, it used to be a crime with no more than a two-year jail sentence. <clears throat> there was no distinction made if the person uh, was a, a rapist or a robber or a drug dealer. All they said was, if you're an alien, you've been deported, you come back, you're looking at two years in jail. I said, well, two years in jail is perhaps adequate for a guy working as a dishwasher in the back of a greasy spoon diner. Or the woman that's working at, at, at a sewing machine in, in a factory somewhere, working illegally. But if you're a dirtbag, if you're a child molester, if you're a bank robber, an arsonist, a terrorist, and we deport you and you come back, you should be looking at 20 years in jail because that is a meaningful deterrent. Well, guess what? We got the law changed. And guess what? Last year, unlawful reentry was the most frequently prosecuted felony for the United States Department of Justice under the Trump administration, which is wonderful. Keep out the robbers and the rapists and the molesters and the drug dealers and the bank robbers. You would think this is a good thing. Over 25,000 aliens were prosecuted under that law that I helped to, to create. <clears throat> Along comes Ms. Harris and says, no more of that. We should not be putting anybody in jail no matter how they come here. My God, it takes my breath away. It takes my breath away. Because... Again, it's not just that we deport criminal aliens, and when they talk to Tom Holman, the former acting director of ICE and these others, they miss the point. Part of the reason you deport aliens who are here illegally is to discourage illegal immigration. And why do you want to discourage it? Because they're taking jobs. I can't tell you how frequently we raided a factory, arrested the aliens, put the boss on notice, and the next day he had to hire people, and he hired lawful immigrants and U.S. citizens. It put Americans back to work. 
especially now with the unemployment rate, the games that Congress playing with, with the money for people who are out of work. I mean, people are living in the midst of a crisis. They don't know how they're going to buy their next meal or, or turn on the lights in their house, or maybe they fear being um, dumped out of their apartments, being evicted. We're living through a crisis, and Congress is off on vacation now. How wonderful. So if you could get people working, wow. In fact, during the Depression, it was President Roosevelt who geared up immigration law enforcement and said, look, we're going to put this under the Labor Department. We want to make sure that only Americans get the jobs so we can raise wages and get people off unemployment and build the economy and get America out of the Depression. Common sense. Common sense. So we have a woman who's really running for president. I mean, there's no way Joe Biden's going to last four years, maybe four months, and I think it's iffy. And what does she say her priority is? Well, we're going to stop prosecuting people for entering illegally, and we're going to give health care to everybody, and it'll be for free. Well, put those two together. (laughs) People will come to America with dangerous communicable diseases, the number one issue and the grounds for exclusion, because they're not being treated in their own country. We have Mexicans pouring across the border, and, and the Border Patrol is under orders to allow some of them to come in and be treated at hospitals along the border. Those hospitals are overwhelmed. Imagine if everybody across the planet said, wow, I've got a dangerous disease. I'm going to go to America because they don't enforce immigration laws, and I can get treated for free. Wow, my favorite price, free. Who's going to pay for that? What happens if people with dangerous diseases Come to America and create a pandemic. Ellis Island was a quarantine station, wasn't it? You see? And at Ellis Island, if you had a communicable disease, it could have been something as simple as pink eye because there were no antibiotics. You weren't allowed in. Families were split up at Ellis Island. There were families that had to make tough decisions. You know, Mama Bear's okay, but Papa Bear has a disease, and you're there with four of your children. Do you go to America and, and you watch your, your husband, your father, get back on the boat and go home to Italy or England or Germany or, or wherever he came from? Or does the whole family go back home with their father because they don't want to be without him? That decision had to be made again and again and again and again and again. And there's documentaries about it. I'm not making this stuff up. But now you have a woman who could very easily become the next president of the United States saying that under no circumstances should we put anybody in jail when they come into the country, no matter how they come here. So why bother with the visa process? Now, understand what the 9-11 Commission just said. Border security is national security, and they go well beyond that. Because the 9-11 Commission also said this. This is on page 46 and and page 47. Um, here we go. By analyzing information available at the time, we identified numerous entry and embedding tactics associated with these earlier attacks, that is, terror attacks in the United States, and that's prior to September 11th. The World Trade Center bombing, February 1993. Three terrorists were involved in the first World Trade Center bombing, reportedly traveled on Saudi passports containing an indicator of possible terrorist affiliation. Three of the 9-11 hijackers also had passports containing the same possible indicator of terrorist affiliation. In addition, Ramzi Yusuf, the mastermind of the attack, and Ahmed Ajaj, who was also able to direct aspects of the attack despite being in prison for using an altered passport, traveled under aliases using fraudulent documents. The two of them were found to possess five passports, as well as numerous documents supporting their aliases, a Saudi passport showing signs of alteration, an Iraqi passport bought from a Pakistani official, a photo-substituted Swedish passport, a photo-substituted British passport, a Jordanian passport, identification card, bank records, education records, and medical records. And sanctuary states like New York State and California are giving driver's licenses to illegal aliens who cannot really prove who they are. We don't know who they are. We're giving them ID, which enables them to drive. Now, when was the last time we saw a terror attack in the United States that involved airplanes? September 11, 2001. What is now around the world the weapon of choice for terrorists? Motor vehicles, trucks, vans, cars. So we have no fly list. You go through hell trying to get on an airplane if you're still willing to fly with COVID. You have TSA, and we've spent billions of dollars on X-ray equipment. 
and 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 we have forty five thousand people working for TSA. We have seven thousand ICE agents, and they don't just do immigration work; they do money laundering cases, they do kitty porn, they do uh, customs investigations, they do anything and everything. Effectively, we might have two or three thousand immigration agents. Why? Because our own government doesn't care about Americans dying. It's got to be the only conclusion you can come to. And this started with George W. Bush. I've written about it before. John Hostetler, the Republican chairman of the House Immigration Subcommittee, stated that the way DHS was put together, cutting immigration into CBP and ICE, which never should have happened, folding them in with immigration and customs and agriculture and all these other agencies, further screwed things up. And he said that what the administration, the Bush administration, had given us was immigration incoherence, making it impossible to secure our borders or enforce our immigration laws, even though it was clear to everybody that the only reason that 9-11 was able to happen was because the terrorists were able to exploit vulnerabilities in the immigration system, not the customs system, not the agriculture system, the immigration system. So you have globalists across the board, George W. Bush, uh, it's inexcusable. It's inexplicable. He shafted America royally. <clears throat> then came Obama and made Bush look competent. What are we doing? We've lost just about all of our expectations of privacy and freedom in the name of national security. They could actually merge TSA with public health and, and give everybody a physical when you get on board the airplane because they're just about that intrusive. But meanwhile, a major vulnerability that we know exists, no one's dealing with it. And it gets worse. Let me continue to read this. Once terrorists had entered the United States, their next challenge was to find a way to remain here. Their primary method was immigration fraud. For example, Yusuf and Ajaj concocted bogus political asylum stories when they arrived in the United States. Mahmoud Abu Alima, involved in both the World Trade Center and landmark plots, received temporary residence under the Seasonal Agriculture Worker Program after falsely claiming he put beans in Florida. By the way, for those of you who want to pick on the Democrats, Ronald Reagan signed that into law. It was a disaster. And the agriculture provisions was written specifically by Chuck Schumer. And when I met with Schumer at the time was my congressman, and I asked him why in the world he was hell-bent on on taking care of agricultural workers when we didn't have the resources to interview these people. I said, this is an open invitation to fraud, and you don't even have a farm in your district. Why are you doing this? And Chuck Schumer, my congressman, said to me, Mr. Cutler, you had a 15-minute meeting. You've been sitting here for about 10 minutes. My next appointment is here. It's time for you to leave. I said, well, don't I get my other five minutes? He says, no, you don't. There's the door. Please leave right now. So you had Schumer. And you had Ronald Reagan, and the conservatives will say, oh, Reagan said he regretted it. And it was interesting because Bill O'Reilly, and I was on Bill's show a number of times, said he personally went through all these records and had a staff go. No one could ever find evidence of Reagan ever saying it. Sometimes the people who worked for Reagan said that Reagan said it, but you don't find it in writing anywhere. This was a sellout by the Republican Party because they were hell-bent on eliminating regulations and lowering wages. And what's the easiest way to lower wages? Import foreign workers. Remember, there's always room for more oarsmen on a slave ship. Okay, let's be crystal clear. I call them as I see them. And it's really remarkable because Bernie Sanders in 2006 gave this really great, powerful speech, and I agreed with everything he said. What do you think of that? Because what he said was, We've got to go after the people that hire illegal aliens because if we allow them to get away with it, they will destroy jobs and wages for middle-class Americans. Bernie Sanders said that. And where is he today? Where are the Democrats today? All in on screwing Americans into the ground. Alan Greenspan testified for Chuck Schumer April 30, 2009, at a Senate Judiciary Committee hearing, uh, rather Senate Immigration Subcommittee hearing, and Schumer at the time was the chairman. And he said the solution to wage inequality is to make American high-tech workers compete with foreign workers. Because if you do that through the wage pricing mechanism of competition, you will lower the wage premium, and that way you greatly reduce inequality in wages between Americans with skills and those with lesser skills. So we are hell-bent on the destruction of the middle class, and that's exactly what the Democrats want. The conservatives say to me, well, you know, the Democrats simply want to import lots of new voters. And I said, yeah, they do, but the bigger issue is this. 
They want to destroy the middle class, which will force all Americans to vote for the politician that offers them subsidies, because the Republicans would never do that. The Democrats do. The Democrat is the party of the handout. Okay? This is kind of like the drug dealer who hangs out in the schoolyard after school and gets the kids hooked on crack, and now he has customers for life. Well, the crack that the Democrats are peddling are subsidies so they can get permanent control over the federal government. We would wind up with a one-government system, and the United States would look just like Venezuela. Venezuela used to be the richest, most incredible country in all of Latin America. If you haven't noticed, it is now the most poverty-ridden country, and people are fleeing Venezuela, running into Colombia the way we have the problem with the Mexican border and Mexicans coming to America. Venezuela has been trashed. It has been driven into the ground by communism. That, I believe, is what is in play. I actually wrote an article for frontpagemag.com that for the Dems, the Democrats to succeed, Americans must fail. This is the goal. More homelessness, more crime, more violence. Come to us, we'll help you. Sure thing. With friends like that, I don't need enemies. Now, it's very easy to say, well, wait a minute, Kamala Harris was a prosecutor. That means she's tough. Not so much. I know plenty of prosecutors who then flipped and became defense attorneys. Bruce Cutler, I, I bumped into him one day at the U.S. Attorney's Office, and we joked about the fact that we had the same last name. We're not related, I'm happy to tell you. And I said, Bruce is screwing up my family name. If you don't remember Bruce, he was John Gotti and other mobsters' attorneys. He started as a prosecutor. I had another case where I was sitting at a law, in the U.S. Attorney's Office. I was wearing a three-piece suit. We were about to go into court. In comes another prosecutor and says to the assistant U.S. attorney that I'm working with, did you hear there was a shooting in Texas? And the lawyer and prosecutor said, no, I'm not aware. What happened? Who got shot? He said, an assistant United States attorney. He said, wow, is the guy okay? Well, we took him to the hospital. They don't know. And then this U.S. attorney who had just walked in said, you know, it's one thing when they kill federal agents. They're expendable. But this is serious. That's a lawyer who was shot. And I jumped up and I invited the guy to a conversation in the parking lot. He said, don't tell me you're an agent. I said, why? I said, because you realize you're a jackass? He said, well, I thought you were a lawyer. I said, I have too much integrity for that. How dare you? And the guy ran out of the office. And the prosecutor I was working with was more than a little bit embarrassed. And he said, Mike, calm down. I understand why you're upset. It upset me to hear that nonsense also. But he's leaving. He's working for a defense law firm. I said, he's already there. Don't let him back in the office. I don't trust this guy any further than I could throw this whole damn building. So they're going to try to play Camilla the chameleon as a centrist. She was a prosecutor. There's the same prosecutor who wants no prosecutions for immigration law violations and has marched and called for the defunding of police. So please don't tell me and don't think, don't make that mistake, oh, she's a prosecutor, so she's okay, she's a moderate, she's tough. She's only tough on the truth. She's a chameleon. She is into whatever is politically expeditious for her grab for power. That's what she is about. So I don't know any prosecutor who still has those values of a prosecutor who would want to defund police or decriminalize immigration law violations when we understand how important uh, immigration law enforcement is to national security and public safety. But I'm still not done with this piece from the 9-11 Commission staff report. So they, I, I mentioned that Mahmoud Abu Alim, involved in both the World Trade Center and landmark plots, received temporary residence under the seasonal agriculture worker program after falsely claiming it had been in Florida. Mohammed Salome, who rented the truck used in the bombing, overstayed his tourist visa. So what we have here, folks, is an illegal alien renting a truck. New York State gives illegal aliens driver's licenses. Do you see the connection to national security and sanctuary policies? I'm not making this up, and I'm not overstating the case. Okay? So Mohammed Salome, who rented the truck used in the bombing, overstayed his tourist visa. And that's why states were told, don't give driver's licenses to illegal aliens. And New York State turned around and said, the hell with you. This was the state that got hammered the worst on September 11, 2001. This is the state that gets more money than any other state for counterterrorism purposes. And this is the state that not only provides driver's licenses to illegal aliens, 
but then does not even provide the information contained in the DMV database to ICE or the Border Patrol. But they do provide the information to Canadian Customs Authorities. Think about that. Still not done. So we, we hear that Mohammed Salmeh rented the truck using the bomb and go state his tourist visa. He then applied for permanent residency under the Agriculture Worker Program, but was rejected. Ayad Mahmoud Ismail, who drove the van. Guess what? Another illegal alien. The van contained the bomb. He took English language classes at Wichita State University in Kansas on a student visa. He dropped out but remained in the United States out of status. He was an illegal alien. So you have one illegal alien renting a truck, and you have another illegal alien driving a truck, and New York State gives driver's licenses to illegal aliens. Brilliant. And Camilla Harris is saying, yeah, let's do it for everybody. Wow. This is going to be the commander-in-chief of America's armed forces responsible for the safety of America and Americans? If this doesn't keep you awake tonight, I don't know what to say. But it gets worse. Let me, let me read some more to you. Page 61, exploring the link between human smugglers and terrorists. In July 2001, the CIA warned of a possible link between human smugglers and terrorist groups, including Hamas, Hezbollah, and the Egyptian Islamic Jihad. Indeed, there's evidence to suggest that since 1999, human smugglers have facilitated the travel of terrorists associated with more than a dozen extremist groups. With their global reach and connections to fraudulent document vendors, and you're going to like this, folks, corrupt government officials, human smugglers clearly have the, quote, credentials, unquote, necessary to aid terrorist travel. Again, what's the nexus? Documents, illegal immigration, and fraud and terrorism. And here we are. And you have a woman who is hoping to be the next president of the United States. Let's not play games about who she is and where she's likely to wind up if, God forbid, she's elected. And what she would do is to ignore all of the information that I'm providing to you. I didn't make this up. I didn't write this. This came from the 9-11 Commission. Now I want to read this to you. Terrorists in the 1990s, as well as the September 11th hijackers, needed to find a way to stay in or embed themselves in the United States if their operational plans were to come to fruition. As already discussed, this could be accomplished legally by marrying an American citizen, achieving temporary worker status, or applying for asylum after entering. In many cases, the act of filing for an immigration benefit sufficed to permit the alien to remain in the country until the petition was adjudicated. Terrorists were free to conduct surveillance, coordinate operations, obtain and receive funding, go to school and learn English, make contacts in the United States, acquire necessary materials, and execute and attack terrorists. The Democrats want a massive legalization program to give green cards to every illegal alien present in the United States. President Trump is getting something really wrong here. I just saw a commercial. And it's upsetting to me that he's getting lousy advice because the president doesn't understand the issue, I believe. His commercial said Joe Biden wants to give 11 million illegal aliens green cards. That's wrong. That's totally wrong. Even MIT, Princeton, and other so-called liberal universities have estimated recently that there is a minimum of 25 million illegal aliens, more than double the 11 million number. So I would argue there's probably 30 to 40 million. Ronald Reagan said a million. We wound up with almost 4 million. Uh, Many of these people probably entered afterward and then lied about their dates of entry. And when people run the border, there's no record of entry that's created. So it's whatever they say. Now, here's the problem. Think about this, because no one talks about these things, and that includes the people who are running the various agencies under the DHS. So I really wonder about how much background they really have at at the grunt level. You know, after 9-11, my phone rang, and it was Sheila Jackson Lee, incredibly, who wanted me to testify about how two of the dead terrorists, Mohammed Atta and Marwan al-Shehi, could have been granted permission to go to flight school six months to the day after the attacks. So by then, the whole world knew that two things about them. They were dead and they were terrorists. 
But the inept immigration service, I used to call it the imitation and neutralization service out of frustration, through a contractor, why they had to have a contractor is beyond me, except it was probably a political payback. This work used to be done by INS employees. So they had a computer company that did this, gave them permission to go to flight school in Florida. Rudy Decker, who actually is a citizen of Germany, contacted Congress and said, what the hell are you doing? These guys are dead. They're terrorists. And I just got a letter in the mail saying that they are, they're authorized to attend my flight school because they applied to attend flight school before they crashed those airplanes. In fact, Mahmoud Abu Alima and, uh, 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 and Atta, Muhammad Atta, were at the controls of the two airplanes that slammed into the north and south towers of the World Trade Center, the two pilots. So they were given permission to go to flight school to learn to fly airplanes six months after the attacks. Absolutely brilliant. And, and so, so here we are. The, these folks were here, and I got called because I had been involved with terrorist investigations. My very first fraud investigation back in 1976 as a new agent. It was supposed to be a nothing case. I, wasn't, I didn't even have my first year in as an agent. It was my first solo case. Normally you work with a senior partner until you complete your training. And I was on the verge of completing my training, and I had already been an inspector for four years with the INS. I already spent a year as an adjudicator. They said the guy came in with an altered visa. Well, it turned out he was at the PLO. He was an Israeli in his mid-20s. He was two years younger than me. He was here to get the money so that they could get explosives and blow up an Israeli oil refinery. Thankfully, uh, I notified my bosses. They notified the FBI. I notified the Israelis. Working together, the Israeli police grabbed six would-be co-conspirators a week before the attack was to be carried out on the oil refinery in Israel. This isn't a joke, folks. People die because of this kind of insanity. So Sheila Jackson Lee with Jim Sensenbrenner invited me to testify at the hearing. That was my first hearing after 9-11 altogether. I think I did somewhere around 15 or 16 hearings and was asked to provide depositions to other hearings. I, I was heavily involved in the whole process. I don't know what the background is of the folks that are running these agencies I doubt they have the kind of in-depth experience I have, so it turns me purple when I hear statements that are made and statements that are not made. Because here's what's being left out of this conversation. Here is what you're not going to hear from the mainstream media. And I don't think you're even going to hear it from the Trump administration because I don't know who in the world he's listening to. Number one, it's not 11 million. It's more like maybe 30 million. But that's only a small part of the problem. There is no way to interview these people. Forget about doing field investigations. I want you to focus on a simple fact. 19 hijackers on September 11, 2001, killed more people than were killed by the entire Japanese fleet at Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941. And the death count from the attacks of 9-11 is not yet complete. People, mostly first responders, are dying every 10 days or so here in New York. Think about that. So where is the death count now? But here's something else. And by the way, I wrote an op-ed back in 06 because I had done some hearings about comprehensive reform. And in my op-ed for the Washington Times, I suggested that they give that terrible program a new and more honest and descriptive name. I suggested calling it the Terrorist Assistance and Facilitation Act in my op-ed piece. Then Senator Jeff Sessions liked my article so much that on three separate days, during the very contentious Senate floor debate on that bill, he quoted me with attribution, and unlike most politicians who like to plagiarize, like Joe Biden, he sent me a certificate commemorating his ability to use my words to persuade enough of his colleagues to defeat that very dangerous bill. That certificate hangs on the wall of my office. And it was when my wife saw that, she actually got it framed, and that was a turning point when she said, wow, you are making a difference. This is good. Okay, so there's no way to interview these people to get about doing field investigations. How many of those terrorists have to sneak through if we're processing 30 million applications? But I'm still not done, as they say in the infomercials, but there's more. The number that nobody is talking about, and that includes with the Reagan amnesty, that disaster, is the fact that every single one of these legalized aliens would immediately have the absolute right and it makes sense, to bring in each and every single one of their minor children and their spouses 
So some guy has been partying and he has children with three different women and he has 12 kids. He's immediately entitled to bring every one of those children here if they're under the age of 21. Now, very often third world families have lots of kids, eight, nine, 10, 12 children, not unusual. So I'm going to be an optimist and say, on average, each alien only brings in three. I'm going to be an optimist. I'm probably wrong. It'll probably be five or six or eight. Who knows? But let's stick with three. What's three times 30 million? Do the math. Three times 30 million is 90 million. We could wind up with, let's say, 90 million school-aged children coming to America within the span of a year or two. The Congressional Budget Office did a study just a couple of years ago, back, well, more than a couple of years ago, back in 06 or 07, and they said that it costs 20 to 40% more to educate children who can't speak, read, or write English. Now, even if these kids are all English professions, the numbers are daunting. But imagine now many of them need English as a second language training. My youngest son has a form of autism, but because of early intervention, he graduated with honors. And he's a highly successful mechanical engineer with an amazing job. I'm very proud of him. I call him my mountain climber. I have four wonderful kids, but my youngest had the greatest challenges because he has Asperger's. But because of early intervention, his life is unbelievable. He has a driver's license. He's doing the work he loves. He's being paid an amazing paycheck. He's just an incredible person. Early intervention made the difference. Today, early intervention is being defunded and money that should go to early intervention is going to English as a second language. So what we're really talking about through what the Democrats are proposing is free health care for the world because they will come here, no penalty for coming illegally, turning America into the world's ER. Americans will have no opportunity to get decent health care. People with dangerous diseases would be enticed to come here to be treated. And who could blame them? I don't. I would do the same thing if I could, if I was in that situation. And we're talking about flooding America with tens of millions of children who in a short period of time will join the labor pool at a time when unskilled labor is becoming less and less important because more and more jobs are being automated. This would be the destruction of the United States of America. And this isn't a statement of hatred or xenophobia. I don't care if we're talking about people coming here from England or Europe or Israel or Japan. It doesn't matter. We're a country of finite resources, finite jobs, finite housing. And if you're concerned about the environment, every human being present in the United States has an environmental and ecological footprint. They all need water and electricity and food and housing, access to mass transit, access to fuel, access to heating, hospitals. It would overwhelm all of America's systems and destroy the country. This isn't a statement of, of xenophobia. It's a statement of reality. You know, when we don't invite people to a party or a dinner because we know that we don't have enough money to buy enough food and there's so many seats at the table, there's so many tables at the, at the, at the catering hall, the people that we leave off the list for that invitation to a wedding or a family dinner aren't people we dislike or hate or fear. It's just that we know that we don't have enough money or a big enough place to have everybody come down. So we have to knock some names off the list, not out of fear, but out of practicality. Now, what's so remarkable, and that's why I want you to read the article so you see it for yourself, New York City, which is a sanctuary city, vilifies immigration law enforcement, won't allow the police to cooperate with ICE, is now using city sheriffs at bridges and tunnels and airports and bus terminals and train stations to question people coming into New York from outside New York. And if they're coming from certain hotspots, they're being notified that they must self-quarantine for 14 days. They must provide an address. If they aren't there, when they knock on the door, these people are looking at fines of thousands and thousands of dollars. So in essence, we're creating a border patrol for New York City. But that's what the immigration laws for the United States are supposed to do. Think about the hypocrisy. Think about how Chuck Schumer has called for the creation of a federal law that would make trespass on critical infrastructures and national landmarks a federal crime with a five-year jail sentence. It was on his official website five years ago. It's still there. And he even mentioned a 16-year-old kid who had climbed the World Trade Center under construction 
and said, look, I don't care if you're an adrenaline junkie or a criminal. If you trespass, you're doing something dangerous, and the way you keep people from doing things that you don't want them to do is impose strict punishments. They know it's wrong, and they won't do it. And he recommended five years in jail for trespassing. Well, isn't the trespassing when you run America's borders to come here without being inspected? But yet the same Schumer and his buddies in the Democrat Party say that if you run the borders, trespass on America, you've earned the pathway to U.S. citizenship. The hypocrisy is beyond startling, and the consequences would be devastating. This isn't the statement of xenophobia, folks. It's a statement of reality. America is a country of finite resources. Americans are out of work. Americans are becoming more homeless. The educational system is challenged between COVID and a lack of resources and a lack of revenue because people are out of work. Money is running short in the city coffers around the country. With that backdrop, Camilla the Chameleon wants to provide lawful status for unknown millions of illegal aliens and their children and their spouses, spouses of the aliens they would legalize, and provide free health care. This is the prescription for turning America into Venezuela. This is a prescription for leaving America vulnerable to terrorists and criminals, and you have to believe they don't care. Because it's one of two possibilities. They are either uncaring or they're so inept and stupid um, that they pose a threat to our safety because they're incompetent and stupid. So is this the crime of omission or the crime of commission? It doesn't much matter because the consequences, no matter why it would be happening, would be the same. Overwhelming America's cities and infrastructure, overwhelming our ability to provide water and food and clothing and housing and education and health care and transportation for what could be an onslaught of tens of millions of immigrants in a short period of time. I go back to my notion that the Democrats have come to the conclusion that the way to seize permanent, utter control over our government is to create a one-party system. How better to do that than to push Americans to the left by pushing Americans into poverty? My father told me that the easiest way to turn capitalists into communists is to take away their money. I submit to you folks that this is all an elaborate plan to destroy the middle class, destroy opportunities for Americans to live out the American dream, while flooding America with foreign nationals. And I find it remarkable that while they're upset with the word alien, the DREAM Act itself is an acronym that uses the word alien. Let's not forget that the DREAM Act is an acronym for development, relief, and education of alien, alien minors. Choices to make this year. The choices are clear. We need to understand exactly why we have immigration laws and why those laws matter. Again, you're going to hear people say, oh, that's an anti-immigrant position, but it's not. My position is hardly anti-immigrant, but it is pro-enforcement. And the people who are most likely to fall victim to violent foreign thugs are the immigrants living within the same ethnic immigrant communities that wind up harboring the criminal aliens among them. Because let's face it, if you come here from another country, you're going to live within the same ethnic immigrant community that's most similar to that which you're familiar with and that which is most likely to help conceal you from detection. So if you come to America and you're a Jamaican gangster, you're not going to live in Chinatown. You're going to live in in a Caribbean ethnic immigrant community, aren't you? And that's exactly what happens. It's not just about Latin America. Uh, This isn't anything at all about ethnicity, race, or religion, because human nature is human nature. Every race, every religion, every ethnicity, folks, has the good, the bad, and the ugly. No matter our skin color, when we are cut, we all bleed red. I hope I'm giving you food for thought. I hope you will read my article at Front Page Magazine and forward it and a link to my program to as many of your friends as possible. Uh, Bill Maher was right. He said we have to understand that we are a nation Um, where half the people may disagree with each other, but we are in a relationship, and it's important that we start having honest and open conversations. I guess Bill Maher recognizes the fact that if this cancel culture uh, continues, he'll be out of a job before too long also, probably his motivation. Anyway, folks, have a wonderful weekend, and please remember democracy is not a spectator sport. 
Check out my podcast, the Team DML, and my articles at Front Page Mag. So long for now. See you next week.